2: cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com
1: this is eat sleep work repeat it's a podcast about workplace culture psychology and life Hello, I'm Bruce Taisley. Thank you for listening. I had uh, the biggest listening figures ever actually last week for the podcast. So obviously an an, enf- an enforced absence produced a, a bit more appetite for these things. So uh, I was delighted with that. Thank you for that. And if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please do share it with other people. I never bore you with things like that, do I? I never ask for, for iTunes reviews. So count your blessings that that's the only time you're going to get it. OK, um, got a good episode today. I mentioned when I was sort of putting these episodes together, my objective really was to try and get to grips with how work is changing and how we can try to address it. Last week, I chatted to Amy Gallo with the perspective of trying to understand um the, the, the relationships that form work. And today is more of the same. I've got a really fascinating discussion with two of the authors of a brand new book. And it was largely the themes of the book that provoked me into thinking that this would be helpful. The book's called The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups. It's by Tracy Camilleri, uh, Samantha Rocky, and Robin Dunbar. And you'll know Robin Dunbar is a former guest on this podcast. He's famous for ideas like Dunbar's number, which is all about how human beings' brains are one of the limiting factors. And brains form a part in the way that we've set up and establish relationships with other people. We can only trust 150 people. We only have one or possibly two people at the heart of our relationships, five people who we, who we spend 40% of our time with. We spend 60% of our time in total with the top 15 people in our lives. All of these things are related to brains. But one thing that came out of the discussion um, and, and the, the book was a really interesting theme that, to my mind, in any consideration about workplace culture often gets neglected. It was this idea that the things that determine human relationships are um, hormones, brains, and time. Hormones, brains, and time. And it's so interesting because, in considerations about workplace culture, I don't think we ever have these dialogues about the, the human software the human hardware that plays a part in how we form trusting relationships but what you find from it is it gets to the heart of trying to understand what an effective group looks like one of the guests today Tracy says that she observed some of this when they were curating some uh, some business courses for for students at, at the university teaches at and they observed that when the class went from 40 people to 45 people it seemed to change the way that the people on the course were interacting with each other and it's insights like that that help inform this I think the most critical thing that I took away from this is that as understanding the role that hormones, brains and time play in human relations is really critical. And as we go on, Tracy explains something that I think is a, a sort of massive, massive penny drop moment for me is the idea that bosses increasingly need to become entrepreneurs for creating connection. They need to be thinking all the time about the ways to create connections in their teams one of the examples tracy gives is is creating meals but specifically building team meals that in her case she said we used we recognized that curry seemed to produce better sharing than other meals that were plated up and given to people because there were small plates that people had to ask to pass now that for me is a really fascinating detail in the same way that we might witness someone wedding planning that actually creating moments of connection is increasingly going to be the thing that differentiates different leaders and different bosses. A really fascinating discussion that I think will give you an insight into the the work that maybe Robin started with his anthropology, his study of, of animals and the humans, and then going on and applying it, which is what Tracy and Samantha have done. So, I really enjoyed this discussion. I think you're going to get a lot of value from it. This is my discussion with the authors of The Social Brain, Tracy Camilleri and Robin Dunbar. I wonder if you could kick us off by just introducing who you are and, and what you do.
2: Till I start oh, yes. <laughs> Robin. <laughs> yes, I'm Tracy Camilleri. I'm an associate fellow at Oxford Said Business School and somebody who's always been interested in. How do you create organisations within which people thrive? Um, and particularly my interest has been in, in leadership and, and what do leaders do to enable that human thriving?
0: And I'm Robin Dunbar. I'm Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. And I guess my interests have always been social evolution in uh, primates mammals in general even but humans in particular and so a lot of the work i've done for the last several decades have really focused on the nature of human friendships how organizations work in everyday social life um uh, and from this point of view my interests really have been in applying some of these ideas that have come out of the um coal pit as they say of of everyday social life applying seeing how they apply to uh the world of work uh, which we spend of course a great deal of our time
1: there seems to be like an intersection of interests it seems like Tracy you were running courses and noticing when the 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 chemistry of those courses didn't quite cohere in the same way it had before and and Robin obviously you've you've come at this from a wonderfully different perspective originally looking at different mammals uh, originally and and how they Produced cohesive bonds. Before we sort of delve into the substance of it, what brought you together?
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I think Robin. We met about ten years ago. But as you say, Bruce, I've been directing um, leadership programs at Oxford and elsewhere. And and as you say, really, my challenge was how do you, in a short period of time, bring together strangers who are often jet-lagged, who are busy, they've got a sort of digital life calling them away from being present. How do you create high curiosity states? How do you uh, help trust to develop in the group? How do you create a sense of tribe? And over the years, I got better and better at it, watching what worked and watching what didn't work. And sort of thought of myself as a somewhat a sort of a maverick uh and you know one day I walked into I think you were in the anthropology department then Mm. Robin and walked into your study and suddenly there there you know were all these files you know there was the size of wedding invitation lift you know the bonding of cohorts in armies and church congregations and I thought Oh, my goodness, you know, you've been doing my science in a way I've been watching, you know, I've been thinking about and micro designing 24 hour design, you know, I even ended up um, even ended up briefing the gardeners and the the ladies who made the beds and, you know, everything mattered. Uh, and and there you were, and so I think that's where we came together with that same interest. Um, me through practice, and Sam as well, who's the third author, author of the book, who had been working in a huge FTSE top ten company, thinking about actually, you know, what what helps us to cohere and and what helps us to thrive. So um, that's my answer. I didn't write answer. Yeah, I, no,
0: I'm just the reciprocal of that because I'd been, uh, like I said, interested in what makes if you like, what makes small scale societies work, and always had wondered how and why and where these ideas that we're seeing in everyday life, as we might apply to. Um, Uh, the world of business. And on that particular occasion, the world of business walked through my door and said, we know how it works in business. So it's a sort of uh, coming together of like minds, really, um, in the perfect match.
1: One of the questions that was foremost in my mind when I wanted to chat to you, a lot of people right now are saying to me things that say that the mechanics of work, we've kind of got working again. We're, we're working three days a week in the office, or you know, we're told we have to be in two days a week in the office. We've managed this transition to a completely different way of working. People have witnessed this fundamental change, the mechanics of it. But the one thing that they generally say to me is it doesn't feel the same. We We feel like we've lost something in the transition. We've gained something, this freedom, this ability for people to adapt their home lives and their and their work lives in a a greater balance but we've also lost something and as a big picture question i'm really intrigued how you would seek to answer that to them what do you think we've lost and so where would we start looking for it so I, i think there's of course there's been a lot of
0: interest in hybrid working of this kind over the course of lockdown, when it was sort of initially forced on us. So there have been a number of very large-scale studies that have looked at this, and they're quite interesting in the kind of micro-details of what happens. There's a very big study by... Microsoft of their entire organization, I think, looking at email traffic and so on. What that showed, and and we showed something very similar in a study of Big American Research University Campus, what seems to drop out while you're sort of away from the place of work is those serendipitous contacts that emerge in face-to-face meetings. So what seems to happen is your email traffic to your immediate group department or research group, whatever it is, uh, continues to flourish and indeed may even expand because you're obviously not bumping into people in the corridor uh, at work. New contacts uh, and casual contacts seem to drop away because you're not having, even with Zoom-type meetings you're not having the same kind of interaction with people paradoxically what seemed to be happening is people were actually spending more time on zoom and other (laughs) digital media at work than they ever would have done when they'd been working in the office itself so it looked like an awful lot of time was just being wasted because people felt they had to be on a a Zoom call because somebody would called for it, but most of the time they were probably sitting in the background not paying a great deal of attention to it. So there are those kind of downsides which probably have quite important knock-on consequences. And just to sort of point out, one, problem-solving often comes as a result of somebody from somewhere else peering in over your shoulder and looking at something on your desk and going, oh, that looks interesting. I think I know the answer to that. Um, uh, and, and introducing uh, a new dimension in, into the the discussion, if you like, in a way that would never have happened uh, for the group sitting around the, the table or the desk because they were kind of all thinking in the same, same way. So those sort of serendipitous, um, diverse views just don't get introduced into the conversation, and as a result – the kind of blue skies, big solutions to the problems of life or whatever it may be don't happen. And there's quite a lot of evidence that that really that that's very important, even in face to face, the face to face world, it's the casual interactions that seem to matter more both in the research world and in the everyday functional world of most businesses that seem to be important. So There are potential losses, I think, which have to be balanced against the benefits that uh, accrue to you as an individual. Being able to avoid the dreadful commuting costs and and pressures, stresses, as well as the financial costs. Being able to do things like take your kids to school and, and, and pick them up at a decent hour and put them to bed and all these kind of things, which long distance commuters miss out on.
2: Uh, just to respond, Bruce, to you on on the level of practice and and what has been lost. We we were approached by a company who had hired half their people in lockdown, uh, about 250 people. And they said, goodness, you know, we don't, you know, we don't know one another. and, And yet, you know, belonging and a sense of connection is hugely important to us. And they asked us to design a kind of cultural gathering they wanted everyone from the receptionist and the person who made the sandwiches to to the chairman to be involved they said we don't want it to be a festival or a party we want it to be celebratory but we want it to be about learning and learning together Um, and to create a sense of belonging, because we've lost it. And actually, we use the seven pillars of friendship, uh, right at the beginning, people were nervous about this, this was, this was uh, just after, after lockdown had finished. And um, so we actually paired, you know, all the people who were Fell runners together on the first day, all the people who were embroiderers and so on and so on. Um, And then on the second day, we mixed them with the most, the people who were most different uh, in the organization with the idea that. They would discover each other. And the chairman actually said, you know, we sort of won uh, a year's worth of, of culture back back in a week. It was a very intense week. But I think, to your point, we are noticing now, I, I don't think hybrid will go away. And we are noticing that prescient leaders are developing social strategies with the same kind of rigour that they're, they're looking at financial strategies or, you know, or digital strategies and thinking if we only get our IT department together once a month, it needs to matter. It needs to matter. We can't do the same old things in person that we're doing as as we're doing now virtually. So, I mean, I, and I think people are really thinking about this. And, and you say, Robin, about the the younger generation. We're doing some research at the moment about Gen Gen Z, and actually, they want to, m- many of them want to come into the office. One young chap said. You know, I go in on a Friday because no one else is there because the finance director is there on a Friday, and uh, he he asks me how my week has gone, and that actually, you know, that's that's important. You know, the incidental learning. You know, I'm interested in how people learn that comes from just sitting next to someone else. Not getting that virtually. So I, I, I come back to your point, Bruce. I think I think there is quite a lot that's lost in the magic of, of what we're doing now.
1: One thing I really took from the book was um, a really simple framework that made me reflect on different circumstances. And I think at one stage you say, our interactions are shaped by three things, our brains, our hormones, and time. And that was really intriguing. I've, my background is I've worked in Silicon Valley firms. And, you know, quite often when they describe workplace culture, it's like a wiring diagram. It's like the highway code. It's sort of the mechanics of how people interact with people. And this human... Aspect this human software um, playing a part would be a complete mystery to them because it's w- where is it on the map, and I wonder if you could just break down those three things. Then, how do our brains, our hormones, and time contribute to the experience of work as a social phenomenon? Okay, uh, uh, in very simple terms, the
0: the issue is that the number of people we can maintain meaningful relationships with is limited by the size of our human brain. So that puts very specific numbers on it. It seems if we get those numbers right in an organization, organizations just work better, if we at least bear this constraint in mind. This is part and parcel though, of the hormonal mechanisms that are involved in creating and maintaining relationships, friendships, if you will, uh, in everyday life. And, and these primarily involve the endorphin system in the brain, which is part of the brain's pain management system, but is deeply embedded in in the way monkeys and apes and humans create their friendships. The Triggering the endorphin system by a variety of activities, including you know, sort of storytelling, and eating together, and singing and dancing together and laughing together. These kind of things build this sense of belonging and trust in other individuals. So you've got your number set by your brain, and then how well that number coheres, or those individuals in that group cohere, is dictated by the hormonal system. Again, part and parcel of that. Time is essential. There are fixed amounts of time which you need to devote to building relationships in order for them to get off the ground. Otherwise, they'll never quite build into something meaningful. Uh, This is sort of a reflection of what what goes on in everyday life. And, And it seems these things really have to be done face to face. The worrying observation that came out of lockdown was how many new starters started their jobs and then left before they'd actually met anybody else face to face in the organization. You know, you can't create this sense of belonging and this sense of trust and and bondedness that's created, if you like, by the village, the workplace as a village that makes the thing buzz and, and work efficiently and fast in the way that uh, a well organized social community should work and can work you know if we get if we get the chemistry right but it, i think I think the message here though for silicon valley is throw away the di- the wiring diagrams because if you try and put this down into sort of simple algorithms you'll get it wrong for sure it's the one thing i've learned in doing research on and and st- studying and t- teaching about human behavior. You can explain to people what happens in considerable detail, uh, uh, but if you if you want that sort of bonding process to work effectively, you have to switch your mind off and, and let the human psyche take over completely unconsciously because the moment you start thinking about it consciously, it all falls apart. So it's it, the key, I think, and I'm sure Tracy will agree here, Is engineering the right kind of environment and ambience in which these things just develop in their own natural organic way rather than trying to force uh the the pace with which they happen I I think that's the message is very clear you know you've got to do it very subtly because once people start to try and consciously think oh I've got to do this at this time and that at that time the whole thing just seems to fall apart we can't do it very well
2: I think that's right Robin but I think there are ways in which you can fast track this you know this 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 virtuous triangle I mean you've talked about eating together I mean we did a over fifty interviews for the with leaders from you know heads of medical supply chains in Nigeria to army generals and so on um, and we certainly, if we're doing have a really tricky meeting, we will begin with a structured meal, (laughs) rather than often it's the other way around, you end with it if the things go well. But actually it changes what happens. Fear as well, a shared little lip of fear. Bizarrely on programmes, we've experimented with inviting people simply to bring any poem, this is not kind of Oxford literary criticism, and just read it in a small dinner party to other, you know, a small party to other people. That act, which You know, seems to be full of fear for people actually reading a poem completely changes the conversation for the rest of the week. It's a bizarre thing. It's like a sort of a Harry Potter porthole, you know. We do instead of workshops, we do walkshops, just walking in synchrony together and talking about ideas or questions. That just the rhythm of doing it. Um music a lot, singing. Sam, who we wrote the book with, worked in the South African government during, you know, a really, really difficult time. And there she she really experienced the, the power of choirs, of people singing together, actually. So I think there are ways we've worked quite a lot with Owen Eastwood, who wrote the book Belonging, and you know, he says um, you know, stories told around a bonfire at night have much more heft and re- resonance. And we will usually end in the woods with, with a bonfire. So there are things you can do that fast track. Our, our, you know, we, we did discover six sort of conditions that thriving teams seem to have, which are, you know, were present in balance in, in every and in every team. And those were things that we've been talking about so far, you know, that sense of connection, the possibility for friendship, Um, culture, the sort of stories and the rituals that that people actually need, purpose and and values, the ability to learn. We hate being held still, I think, and not being able to to progress. These these foundational conditions and a sense of belonging is absolutely key.
1: What I love about um, some of the way that you've delved into that is that there's been a degree of a skunk works of working things out and fine tuning them. So what I loved, Tracy, was the detail you gave of how when your class rose from 40 students to 45 which you might think superficially pretty much a rounding error and it changed the dynamics. Um, I think you talk a lot about the most, the uh, biggest number of people that you can have in a conversation, I think is four or five. I think five is where it's, it breaks. Um, and I loved the detail that you, you've mentioned there a meal that kicks things off, but you said very intentionally, you've learned that curry is a good meal because there's are small plates that invite people to ask, to pass items over. And what I love about all of, all of that is that there's a very um, precise architecture of working out. If our objective is to be an entrepreneurial, to to facilitate interactions, then we can't just say, oh, we've arranged a meal. We can't just say we've arranged a group who are going to get together. It's to some extent, It's about being um, the leader's job, A, a modern contemporary leader's job is thinking about how they can create these moments of connection where maybe in the past we got away without doing it with that degree of precision. I wonder if you could speak about that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think a leader's job at the moment particularly is the job of being a social designer, actually. You know, these things don't happen just... You know, through serendipity, we we are not able to, as Robin said, bump into each other and, you know, kind of have brilliant ideas where here we are on Zoom the whole time. And I think those acts of design, you know, so on. Yes, we'd always begin with a curry because you have to pass all the plates and talk to one another. I even think about the size of the tables, you know, so that you can, you're at how many people you can talk to. You never have a table too fat that you can't talk to the person opposite you. And then on the second day, we'd always do a kind of street food, which came from all the countries or as many countries as possible of the people who were participants, so that they get a chance to tell stories, which are really foundational stories, about their culture, about their food. And, and if we didn't do food, we'd find wine or whatever it was from those. So that we flipped it. It was all about them. They were participators. We'd think about the tone, um, you know, how to connect with people before they came. And we found that by fine-tuning all of these things, you know, busy people didn't drop out beforehand because they had that sort of personal connection. We, back to your point about size, we were really bewildered that, you know, we had a waiting list. Uh, you know, one wants to make money, I suppose. It seemed, you know, let's go up, let's increase the numbers. And what happened, because we only had a, a limited period of time, was that the group immediately split into two. It was a really bizarre thing, you know, Um, and we thought, what is happening here? And in the small groups, the small tutorial groups, there were seven in each of them. And the tutors were constantly closing down the talk. You know, they were constantly saying, I think we've got to move on. And it kind of went okay, um, but none of us enjoyed it. It felt like work, We did it one more time and then we said, no, we've got to really think about scale here um, and and what, you know, what's the right scale for what we're trying to do. So we cut back, which, of course, is difficult uh, when one's trying to, you know, (laughs) trying to be profitable, but it mattered.
0: And this, this I might point out, was before Tracy and, and Sam had asked me about it. So this is <laughs> serious science being tested before the answer was
1: found. <laughs> Can you explain to me that, that number that we've talked about, sort of conversation ends at five? And, and maybe if you could explain the sort of the ripples that, that go from one and a half to five to... Uh, I wonder if you could talk through the mechanics of how our brains determine the, the intensity of connection. Yeah. Okay, let me start with
0: the conversational one because it always just intrigues me. We did, actually discovered it by accident some years ago <clears throat> watching what went on in conversations, and we discovered that every time uh, a social group sitting round a table at a pub or, or, or at a reception maybe got above five, it mysteriously suddenly broke up into two conversations. There are several contributory components, one of which is... You can only have one speaker at a time and uh, in a conversation, everybody else has to remain quiet. So um, for a conversation to get bigger than about five people, effectively, it has to become a lecture right so that i mean we do that we 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 make those arrangements and everybody abides by some unwritten social rule which says you sit and listen quietly otherwise the whole thing just falls apart you know if you think about it a, a, a big committee at a board gathering as it were if you don't have a chairman there to you know sort of keep order and stop people talking the whole assembly it breaks up into a number of small conversations, which gradually get louder and louder. And the other part of the problem is that it's very difficult to hear what somebody is saying across the circle once it gets bigger than about four or five people. You're just too far away, really, to... to. Um, here at normal voice levels, so you start shouting, which is why noise levels get bigger and higher and higher in, in, in receptions and the like as more people are involved. So all these things serve to limit conversations. And this this natural grouping is so strong that y- you experience it even on, on places like Zoom. Zoom very often ends up being dominated by about four people, and it's usually the four people with the loudest voices and the rest sort of retreat into the depths of their news feeds or what's going on in the street outside the window while sort of vaguely listening to what's going on so you know it it's important to bear this in mind of course it has dramatic impacts in terms of work groups because if you have more than about let's say four or five people in a in a small scale work group working on a problem it's very difficult for them to engage in conversation with each other at the same time and to manage the the processes of, of uh, contributing. Another reason why this limit is that the, the bigger the group, the less airtime each of you gets. And after a while you kind of want, I want to say something, <laughs> let me in. It all starts to get very annoying. Um, So there are those sort of everyday limits, which uh, you just have to look around at the next reception or evening in a pub to see this. It's quite magical. Our social world more generally consists of a series of very discrete layers or circles of relationships usually in our kind of everyday world this consists of about half family extended family members and half friends in the normal meaning of of the word but we always treat them together as uh, kind of one much the same thing they're just your social relationships um now the way this seems to work is there's a kind of outer limit on the number of relationships which you can maintain coherently at any one time that's about 150 people it's a varies around that but on average it's always about 150 people and then as inside that you have a series of layers so your social world looks a bit like the ripples on a pond when you drop a stone in if you like so if you imagine yourself as a stone you're surrounded by a series of waves or ripples going out from you which are very small near you but very high and as they go further and further out Uh, They get bigger and bigger, but the height of the wave gets smaller and smaller. So the the size of the circle represents the number of people, and the height of the wave itself kind of represents the emotional closeness you have with, with those people. And these layers occur at one and a half, five, which clearly tucks into the conversational uh, constraint, Uh 15, 50, 150. And we know actually that they go on beyond that to 500, 150, and 5,000. After 5,000, you become complete strangers. You have no idea who those people are, but everybody within that layer You've seen them before, either in a photograph or, or in the street or face-to-face in some way, so you recognise them. You might not know who they are, but um, beyond 5,000, they literally are strangers. Um, but these, the quality of the f- relationships you have with these people um, depends on which circle they lie in. Clearly, the innermost circle of one and a half is your romantic uh, and intimate relationships. And so, you know, this is probably not at work um, in in the majority of cases. But beyond that, work colleagues start to filter in because obviously you do establish good friendships with people at work and you see them socially afterwards. Um, We think most of your work colleagues probably sit in the layer of acquaintances, which sort of Goes sits outside the 150 and runs out to about 500. So you kind of characterize them as people who, well, you'd go and have a pint with them after work maybe, but you kind of wouldn't invite them home for a big party. And you certainly wouldn't invite them for those kind of once in a lifetime events like a bar mitzvah or a 50th birthday party or a wedding, or, or, or and they wouldn't turn up to your funeral for sure. But the people inside the 150 circle, 150 of them would. Um, and, and, and turns out that 150 is a very, very characteristic size for wedding uh, guest lists, both here and in the, in America. Um, <clears throat> in the inner, inner layers, as you come in, a kind of, characterised in different ways and serve different functions for them. So that inner uh, layer of about five we refer to as the support clique or the shoulders to cry on friends. They're the friends that will come and pick you up when your world falls apart. They'll drop everything to come and help you out. The next layer out at 15 is sometimes those, the sympathy groups. That's your main social circle, as it were, that you you draw on most regularly for social events. The fifty layer, I kind of think, is kind of your—I don't know—your your your bigish birthday party event. If you are going to throw a a, y- a barbecue in your back garden, you, you you'd probably um, draw on that fifty layer most. So so, you know, the quality of the friendships varies. What they will do for you varies. The closer into to to you are in those circles, the more willing they are to drop. Everything and help you out should you need it. You know, at the end of the day, you know the world of work depends on those precisely those kinds of favors. So, if people aren't kind of if your if your work colleagues aren't sort of distributed through those layers, um, you know, it's like trying to get a favor out of a stranger. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Going on from what Robin was saying, one of the things that perhaps surprised us out of our interviews. Um, just thinking about the ripples as they work at, at work was that people seem to lead in different ways at different scales. And maybe that's just an obvious thing to say, but at five, you, you don't need a leader. You may need a you may need some permission um, to to just go at pace and not necessarily, you know, deal with all the bureaucracy. And they're great for creative teams, crisis teams, and so on. But there was a sense that leadership at that level is about standing back. Sort of around 15, people talked about facilitative leadership. And again, maybe this is obvious, but I don't think we train people necessarily for these skills. We, we train people for broadcast, for presentation skills or speaking skills, but you know, for listening, for conversation, for mediation, for, the, for convening, those sorts of skills – Absolutely key because what you need there is, is diversity really in that group. If you're going to make decisions at 50, and we noticed 50 was quite an interesting number for entrepreneurs or startups. It was the num, you know, number at which you couldn't hold it anymore in your head. And that, you know, you started to feel sentimental about the old days and you start in new layers and, and, you know, you had to start to think about the way information passed around the system. You had to focus on the message received, not the message. Given, and at 150, as as Robin says, you know, beyond that, the kind of weird stuff happens. It's the, it's the tipping point. It's the point at which um, we becomes us and them, as W. L. Gore says. And there, beyond that, you have to accept as a leader. There's a symbolic nature to what is projected upon you. You know, people's hopes and fears get projected upon you as a leader. Actually, because they don't have a real relationship with you. But there's real power as well in what you can do symbolically as a leader at those points. And I think people sometimes underestimate that. So we've been interested, actually, that we don't necessarily train people in the skills that are needed to lead in different ways at different scales.
1: Two intriguing questions following that. You evidence one piece of research that that talks about the ideal size of an organization to maximize social to, to maximize social socialization um so you i think you said somewhere an organization that's 60 to 120 people or something in that region that that tends to have cultures where people socialize with each other and and definitely if, if anyone's ever worked in an organization that goes from below that size to above that size. They'll recognize that, you know, there's a degree of factionalization that takes part. So, I mean, I'm intrigued in that there there seems to be a sweet spot. And you mentioned the Gore company um, that really sort of bakes this limit and Amish society as well, you mentioned that, that bakes this limit into their structures. I, I wonder if, you know, if anyone's thinking about this for their own organization, what advice would you give based on those numbers?
2: Well, I think it is a moment when people are really looking at the structure of organisations because the old kind of pyramid <laughs> It is actually a brittle beast, you know, particularly in a complex system where change is coming from beneath or from, you know, it's not coming from the top, cascading down from the top. So people are thinking in more, you know, in flatter, more fractalized sort of honeycomb sort of ways about the structures of their organizations. And goodness, you know, there are huge organizations that are very successful. Again, our co-author, Sam, worked for SAB Miller, you know, huge FTSE Top Ten Company and now now um taken over by A B and both, but they had They had a a, a culture, actually, you know. Actually, you know, everyone came together around around a beer in uh, sort of five or five thirty in the evening, and a real culture of friendship. And I've been amazed that it hasn't existed for several years. But the diaspora of relationship, how it's lasted so long, is extraordinary to me. So back to your question, Bruce. I I think it's not necessarily uh, about absolute numbers, but it's about how you conceive of organizations, I think how you distribute leadership. So I don't think I, I know WL Gore felt that every 150 you needed to, to start again. Um, but I, th- I I think it's it's more about um creating opportunity for more for pa- more powerful relationships within large organizations and and, and actually leadership and it lives in the relationship it's not about individuals or mastery or position it is about the strength of relationship so I don't know Robin what you'd say you know that there's an ideal of ideal size of company
0: but the answer is no because in principle this fractal structure of uh, the social world allows you to build almost infinitely sized if you do it right in the right way infinitely sized organizations the key is trying to maintain this fractal structure. After all, that's exactly what the army do. All armies around the the world, all modern armies, uh, are built up in this fractal sort of way where sort of small uh, units on the ground are gradually brought together in in larger and larger groups, and they maintain this structure of 15, uh, 50, 150, 500, um, 1,500, 5,000, fifteen thousand, fifty thousand, um, universally and and they've worked that out just by practice, as it were, of what actually works, uh, given the constraints of what they're trying to do, what their their function is as as an army in the battlefield, as it were. Well.
1: And you say a lovely thing there. You say you quote a retired general and you say it's generally not their countries that soldiers die for. It's the members of, I guess it's the people they share a tent with or the it's company the members of their small yeah. group. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just an important yeah. reminder that w- there was one thing that really connected with me. I read a couple of weeks ago about the plight of warehouse workers who increasingly warehouse workers were having so little time allocated for personal interactions that they were finding work incredibly isolated, and you lie side by side two different groups: railway workers and factory workers. Um, and you you say how factory workers, superficially, they might be suffering from a harder working. Uh, experience because they're working nights, they're working anti hours, but because their days or their, their evenings, their working days are filled with laughter and connection and joking with each other, the mental health experience of them was significantly better than people who worked in warehouses who reported feeling disconnected from their customers, disconnected from their colleagues and disconnected from the, the job that they were doing. And it really struck me, that sense of connection might seem like a triviality that doesn't exist on the business, uh, the, the business plan. It doesn't exist on the balance sheet. But it, for me, it spoke to the importance of these elements of humanity. And secondly, how critical they are for business objectives.
2: Well, that that was some work done by um, a company called Liminal Space, um, and it was called Night Shift. Yes, yeah, looking at, at at people doing night shifts. And I think you're right, Bruce, it wasn't only that sense of, Connection and camaraderie, but also there was a sense of meaning out of their work. You know, they felt um, they were actually repairing. I think they were repairing railway <laughs> rail rail line, and they felt that like they were they were you know doing they were bringing they were making things safer. You know, there was a sense of pride in what they were doing um, and connection. And I think you know this is Robin's written hugely about this. And there was a study I think today um, published by the BMA, about, you know, the effects of friendship and connection on people's health. You know, as a, I think, Robin, you always say, don't you, if you want to give up smoking, don't, don't guess a nicotine patch, uh, find yourself a non-smoking friend. And, you know, friendship at work as well is so important. Um, you know, the World Happiness Study also talked about that, you know, need to have friends at work. And yet, do we make conscious space for it um isn't it something oh it'll just happen naturally but i i I think those are the things back to the first question you asked us in this podcast which is what has been lost i i think some of those spaces and opportunities have been lost Um, i
0: mean the danger here is or has been i guess we might say you know that other interests in terms of how a, a business and organization is structured and works and its function um, have intervened to drive their organization in ways that aren't necessarily very productive. And, and this is, you know, in part this is because a lot of our perception of, um, the efficiency or uh, value of an organisation is in terms of the countable outputs, as it were. So you can count up how many sales units you've you've sold, or you know what the profit margins have been, and and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, which is fine, you know. I mean, we do need to know about these things and keep an eye on them, but they don't necessarily uh, increase the effectiveness or efficiency with which an organization works. And and the problem, as we kind of argue in the book, really, is that because that's very difficult, that social metric is very difficult to figure out and uh, count up in simple numbers that you can put in a PowerPoint presentation to the board, because that's very difficult. Uh, By and large, you know, everybody from the accounts department to uh, the the work-study folk, have kind of ignored it um, uh, um, as as you know, rather trivial. And our point is, actually, no, it's probably the most important feature uh, you, you need to think about. If you want the organization to function efficiently and do its best, um, it's not the profit line you need to look at. It's actually the relationships between the individuals. And what's interesting is we've shown recently that these numbers, and particularly 150, are what are called attractors in in the business. They, they're numbers where the system naturally gravitates to because the system, the network, this is in terms of the structure of networks, the network works much more efficiently. Information flows around them efficiently. Now, if you have kind of a board that imposes a different kind of structure on the system, it'll disrupt those uh, efficiencies uh, and by by making the groupings as it were the the of the various layers the wrong sizes if you if you can sort of restructure it all so that they're they hit these numbers 50 15 uh 150 and 500 and so on what you'll find is that the flow of information around the system however that you like to measure that you know whether it's bits of paper flying or people talking to each other or 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 the bonding processes involved um, will just work much better. It's kind of a medical process in a way, but it's remarkable. And we've shown mathematically that this is so. Um, so there are very, very good reasons for trying to organize the structure of uh, an organization, um, into these characteristic Blocks, as it were, and have them kind of build up this sort of um, uh, hesitate to use the word military like structure, but the military got there before us, so give them credit. Um, you know, if, if, if you're organized so that you're you're Bottom groupings are gathered together in, in into ever bigger groupings of about these numbers. The whole structure will work much more efficiently for you and your profit line should be higher.
2: <laughs> and your point about measurement, we only value what we measure. I mean, um, you know, in the 19th century, we took air quality for granted. We didn't measure it, water quality. And, you know, just because we can't see relationship you know just because it seems to exist in the spaces in between you know i i really do believe that um you know there will come a point where where we will be able to measure the the social quality of organizations where we will be able to take take it seriously and we need we need to particularly now you know what is it 50 billion dollars being spent on well well well-being loneliness and and those sorts of uh you know really you know aspects of of people's mental health in the workplace, you know, this is a moment where we really do need to sit up and take notice.
1: I fully agree with you, but I do subscribe to Goodhart's law, which is Goodhart's law is any measure which becomes any good measure which becomes a target ceases to be a good measure, and so uh, there there is some fundamental conundrum we're faced with. We're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask one question Um, specifically, Robin. You've also written a book this year, or it just it just came out about religion, and I just you know. I wonder if you could bring the religious to the secular. What could any organization learn about religion? I'm specific. I'm I'm priming the pump here, but I'm interested in how religion uses ritual. And, you know, I think it's the the old uh, phrase. If you want to make someone see God, get them, make them get down on their knees and pray first. uh, I wonder what rituals we can learn from religion. Yeah. um, and Essentially, The book is kind
0: of an extension of the Friends book and the Social Brain book, really, and just saying, well, look, these things apply in the world of religions as well as as in everyday life. So if you look at what the optimal size of congregations is, lo and behold, it's about 150 people. If it's too small, it doesn't work quite so well. If it's too big, it kind of becomes fractious and breaks up uh, of its own accord. Um, But it's clear that, uh, you know, I suppose religions are, in a sense, a natural part of our, our psychology by and large, and we've had a lot of practice at them. And I think it, what we see in religions is simply the expression and the exploitation of exactly these kind of organisation, same organisational principles, the use of storytelling and stories, foundation stories that explain why we belong together, what it is that we're here for, what our purpose in life is. Uh, in a, in a, um, uh, what good are we doing, as it were, um, the rituals of interaction that people engage in, in 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 services, the kneeling and the standing and the singing and occasionally the dancing, and even in some cases the laughing, all these things and the eating together, you know all these things build this sense of community. so actually this book is arguing that the origins of religion lie in trying to create or our ancestors' attempts to create bonded, well-functioning, small-scale communities. And in some sense, that's the root of the problem. It's very kind of uh, a good metaphor, actually, for organizations. We can use, religions use the same processes to build ever-bigger mega-religions up to the big ones we see now. But actually, they were designed to handle communities of 150. So one consequence of that is, you get this bubbling up from underneath of breakaway cults and sects who you know are very often built round charismatic leaders who've discovered a new truth of life as it were and are very attractive then to the members but they're very personalized little groups of you know max of 150 people and and they either s- survive and break away and, and and become new religions eventually or they get suppressed by the the mother church who doesn't like them <laughs>
2: if I could just do a watch out here so we don't end on the on the note that we're trying to set up I mean, nothing comes for free in biology, you know, and I think what we've learned and even in the act of writing the book is that there are times when you need to go with the grain of our kind of inherited psychology and biology. And that actually by going with it, You know, rather than going against it, back to your attractors and so on, there are huge things we can accomplish. But at times we have to go against it. You know, I mean, a sense of belonging is great. But if we start to drink our own Kool-Aid and believe that we are, you know, invulnerable and that, you know, get cultish, it's not so good. So I think it is a question of working with and against. um, And, uh, but but you're right, of course, the storytelling the eating all, all those sorts of things' it's hugely hugely important
1: if if you were to have final one one final word and you're you're wonderful at packaging up the lessons that people might take from this but if if you were to to give people listening to this one way that they might think about applying the, the implications of the social brain to Uh, how humans interact and how teams work. Is there anything you'd you'd leave us with?
2: I think it's a moment. I think this is such an interesting moment for people to be thinking about how they bring people together and how they make it matter. Again, we spoke to Theodore Zeldin and he ended up by saying, you know, is it not the job of business to create experiments uh, to provide something better? for young people and you know i feel hopeful about our ability to learn from this moment and to create environments where people are productive they have impact they you know innovate but they're also happy and and healthy and i think that's what we're trying to explore um and it's there's a whole toolkit in the social brain
0: i i i Pick a, take that a bit further even actually and just point to the fact that we have this kind of pandemic of loneliness among the 20-somethings in particular, the new job starters basically coming into a strange city where they know nobody uh, other than the people that, that they mix with at work. And, and that's been going on for 20 years probably and just getting worse and worse. And my, I, what I would simply point out to, to business organisers, as they were, leaders, is Uh, that's a huge health cost for you because the biggest predictor of people's um, likelihood of falling ill, getting depressed, getting physically ill, contracting diseases of all kinds, and therefore having to take time off work is whether they've got friends or not. So if they're unable to build friendships and build a social world at work, particularly the young ones coming in from, you know, graduating from university at one end of the country and coming you know, to their first job somewhere else in a big city where they know nobody, um, you, know, you would re- increase your productivity enormously just by solving the friendship problem. I don't say solving the friendship problem is the easiest thing to do, but the more you think about it and the more you try to find solutions to that, I'm sure the profit margins will rise inexorably.
1: Thank you so much. Such a timely conversation. I'm so grateful for all of the insight and all of the provocation. Actually, so th- thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Robin. Thank
2: you, Bruce. We really yeah, enjoyed great it. Great pleasure,
1: as always. Thank you to Tracy and Robin. Uh, Samantha, the co-author, wasn't able to join us, but um, she's uh, she's obviously a contributor to the book. I'm really grateful for your company today. I've got a few more episodes recorded and ready to go. And so you're going to be seeing those in your feed pretty soon. But if you have enjoyed this or you've got any value from it, or even if it's provoked some discussion, please do get in touch. You can do that via the website. That's eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And uh, you can connect with me uh, via there and, and send me your thoughts. Always grateful for your company. Thank you so much. I've been Bruce Sazely. See you next time.